Why am I going to stop using the term progressive Christians? And how many times does Andy Stanley need to put himself in the hot seat before we just stop listening to him? Also, it might be a good time to do a prophecy update as things are happening and they just seem to keep happening. And then after that, we'll run through a few more mailbag questions. All that today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor. I'm a pastor and someone who thinks that words matter. And that's what I want to talk about today. And I don't have a big point today. I think I can make it pretty quickly, so I'll get right into it. Not saying it's going to be a short episode because we're going to be talking about several different things. Um, But if you stick around after my first point today, I would like to eventually get to some mailbag questions, and I'm still kind of owe you a few on that. So we'll get into that and uh, also do a prophecy update sometime in there as well. Now, you might have seen some comments that were shared recently from megachurch pastor Andy Stanley. And this pastor, he's been a major voice in Christianity for really for the past, you know, 15, 20 years. He's a well-known pastor. He's known for his books, his sermons on leadership, his books on parenting and leadership and decision-making. And uh, he has this unique approach to apologetics that I might get into a little bit later. Um, So I've watched and listened to a couple dozen Andy Stanley sermons over the years. Uh, He's great at the application element of delivering a sermon. And personally, I mean, I always like having practical applications that you can give people in your messages. Um, so I've always really appreciated that from him. Um, a lot of pastors out there, you know, that's their weak point is they, they give a great theological explanation of something from the Bible, but they don't give you any practical application to go along with it. So, I mean, I like that he's kind of, if, if anything, he airs more on the other end of the spectrum on that. Um, I, I think he has great life advice that he can give you. Um, and so some of his sermons, I said, you know, he kind of gets into the other side of extreme on that. Some of his sermons are actually pretty light on scripture, but they're very heavy on the advice and application. And, um, and that kind of also runs into a stereotype about a lot of mega church pastors out there that some people say they're more interested in giving self-help messages rather than preaching the word of God. And, and, you know, that might be a fair criticism of Andy Stanley. And like I said, I've, only, I've listened to a few dozen of his messages. Um, I generally, you know, I, I pretty much always appreciated them and, and liked what I heard. Uh, but I would say it's, it's probably true that he might be a little bit too much into the self-help type of stuff. And I've never been a hater of Andy Stanley. You know, some people have just, there's people out there who've said, oh, they can't, they can't stand him. Um, I don't, I can't speak to knowing much about him as a person. He had a a falling out with his dad, who's a, a famous preacher named Charles Stanley. They kind of had a falling out like 20 years ago. And uh, I read some stuff on that, that, um, you know, made both of them look kind of bad. So I don't know who was in the right or whatever, but, but so Andy was, was at Charles's church and then he broke off and started his own church. And that's where he's been for many years. And so it, as well as being a very accomplished author and conference speaker and stuff like that, he had a book called Visioneering. 
And it was an excellent book that I see it recommended a lot. I mean, it wasn't like life-changing or anything, but I would say it's one of those books, you know, if you're a leader, especially a pastor, it's a good one for you to read. It's a great church leadership book. Um, when I was in college, or it might've been, it might've been right after I got out of college, I think maybe right after I got married, uh, I remember I was attending a Sunday school class and it went through a series that he did. And uh, we were watching videos and and uh, one of them was about... Um, identifying or avoiding deception. And I mean, I've, I've kind of went back and revisited some of that material. I thought it was a really solid Bible study. So, you know, I think he's got some good stuff out there, but also like a lot of pastors who've really disappointed us for the past few years, he started to make some really concerning statements, uh, some confusing statements. He's made, he's made some comments that could be read as kind of negative when it comes to the authority of the Bible. He famously said that we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. And, you know, that's a, one of those statements he made that had a lot of people saying, well, wh what do you mean by that? You know, so he makes some statements that can be kind of confusing or questionable. Um, he's spoken on cultural issues at times, but yet he didn't use those opportunities to, pre to present a biblical perspective on some of the controversial topics that we see going on in, in modern times. But he really seemed to go off the deep end here lately. And, and hey, maybe he was always there. But he's made some borderline heretical comments uh, at his own church, at a pastor's conference they were holding at his church uh, in uh, January or early February. Is here recently. Um, but I believe it was at his church. It doesn't really matter. I'm going to play a clip of his comments, okay? And this is like a two-minute clip. So I'm going to play this. And then we'll, we'll talk about it, okay? And, and then later I want to get to the title of this video and, and what I mean by what I said in the title of this, um, of this podcast episode today. Figure out how to get straight people as excited about serving and engaging as the gay men and women I know, we would have a volunteer backlog. That's my experience in our churches. Well, I, I'm a gay person. I'll just read it to you. A gay person. When I say gay men and women, okay. A gay person who still wants to attend church after the way the church has treated the gay community, I'm telling you, they have more faith than I do. They have more faith than a lot of you. A gay person who knows, you know what? I might not be accepted here, but I'm gonna try it anyway. Have you ever done that as a straight person? Do you, where do you go that you're not sure you're gonna be accepted and you go over and over and over and over? Only your in-law's house. That's the only place you go where you know you're not completely accepted, but you go over and over and over and it's because you have to. But other than the in-laws, what environment do you continue to step foot in knowing at any moment you may feel ostracized? No place. I'm telling you, the gay men and women who grew up in church and the gay men and women who've come to faith in Christ as adults who want to participate in our church, oh my goodness. I know 1 Corinthians 6 and I know Leviticus and I know Romans 1. It's so interesting to talk about all that stuff. But just, oh my goodness, a gay man or woman who wants to worship their heavenly father, who did not answer the cry of their heart when they were 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. God said no, and they still love God. We have some things to learn from a group of men and women who love Jesus that much and who wanna worship with us. And I know the verses, I know the clobber passages, right? We gotta figure this out. And you know what? I think you are. 
So there are so many things that I want to say in response to that clip. So that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> that's, that's why I have a podcast, so I can, I can talk about this stuff. So there's times in the past that, as I mentioned, Andy Stanley has said some questionable things. And then, you know, sometimes people would, would ask him about it. Hey, what do you mean by that? What do you mean when you said unhitched from the Old Testament? And he would give, he would either put out a statement or he'd do an interview and clarify his thoughts. And he would affirm that he believes the traditional Christian doctrine you know, that maybe he doesn't phrase it that way sometimes in his messages, but that that's what he ultimately believes. And I'm not saying he does that every time he said something questionable, but my point really is he's made a lot of questionable statements in the past. Like at some point, you got to kind of look in the mirror and say, why does this keep happening? Why do people keep questioning or wanting more information on what I said? Um, so, so, you know, the, I, th- I think in the past, I might have given him the benefit of the doubt sometimes when he would say strange things. But after doing it so many times, I actually would not say he just deserves the benefit of the doubt anymore. Like, I'd say at this point, when you mess up that many times and you just keep doing it, I'd say that you're being intentionally deceptive. And that's a little bit of a heavy, like, that's a strong claim, I understand. (laughs) But I really thought about this before I was going to say that. Uh, I think he's intentionally being deceptive about, about what he believes. In fact... I'd say he may have even turned into one of those deceptive teachers that he used to warn me about back when I took that Sunday school class. So let me read a comment here that, that you said, or I, could, I guess I could play the clip again. The gay men and women who grew up in our church and the gay men and women who came to Christ as adults who want to participate in our church, like that, okay, that, that was a statement that he made that when you make a statement like that from the pulpit, you really need to qualify what you mean by like gay men and women who come to Christ, like you need to explain what you mean by that statement. You can't plead ignorance at this point. (laughs) Like the whole, the gay issue has been around for basically my whole life. Okay. He's been a pastor all this for decades. You can't just say something like that and just expect everybody to know what you mean. And these are prepared comments that he makes. He's reading it off of a page. Every word in that talk that I played for you a few minutes ago He wasn't speaking carelessly or off the cuff. This was his well-thought-out thoughts that he was sharing at this conference. He's reading it right off of a script. Then he says, We have some things to learn from a group of men and women who love Jesus that much and who want to worship with us. So, again, as you heard earlier, but let me just clarify there. The group that he is saying that we can learn from is gay people. People who are openly gay, practicing homosexuals. He's talking in that clip about how they love and how they worship Jesus. And this is a deception what he's teaching right here, okay? And and here's why I say that, because I know there are a number of people out there who experience same-sex attraction, and yet they say, I don't act on those desires. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. He died for my sins. I obey what he says. I don't engage in same-sex relationships. I don't engage in that kind of behavior. I understand Hopefully you understand there are some Christians like that out there. Hey, my hat's off to them because they're taking seriously what Jesus said. You know, when he says, take up your cross and follow him, we all have our own crosses to bear. For some people, it means denying a sexual attraction. I mean, actually, that's that's true for everybody, right? Everybody has to keep their sexual behavior in check if we're going to be Christ followers. But back to what it was talking about, people with same-sex attraction, it applied to them too. That is not the type of people that Andy Stanley is talking about. 
because the church is not mean to those people. The church has not attacked and ostracized those people. Those are people, they follow Jesus, as I said, despite their attractions, despite their temptations. They follow Jesus. They keep themselves under control. No Christian has a problem with those other Christians. No, no Christian has a problem with that. The church hasn't been mean to them. Andy Stanley, when he says this, he's talking about openly gay, unrepentant LGBT people. He's saying that they are the ones who show great faith by entering church and wanting to be around God and wanting to be around other Christians. He's saying there's something special about their faith that we should try to emulate because they are so desperate to come to church despite how, <laughs> how allegedly, despite how we allegedly mistreat them. Which, you know, as I think about it, I can't remember crowds of gay people who are clamoring to get any into any churches that I've attended before. <laughs> Maybe that happens at Andy Stanley's church. And I'd wonder why. Because I tell you what, if you look on the Twitters, gay crowds, the, the gay crowd out there is sure celebrating Andy Stanley's comments. You know, none of them were at his church when he said them. But once his sermon posted online, the LGBT crowd, they were thanking Andy for what they took as a huge endorsement from this megachurch pastor. So they're happy today. Because Andy Stanley says they are worthy of recognition because they are so desperate to worship Jesus. The fact that they would come to a church where, uh, you know, uh, supposedly, I guess, at a church you're going to be taught that homosexual behavior is a sin, but they would come anyway. So Andy Stanley says, well, anyone who'd come to a church, they're worthy of recognition. We should want to have faith like them because they're so desperate to worship Jesus. You know, as he said that, it brings to my mind the stories in the Bible. You know, even demon-possessed people would come and throw themselves at Jesus's feet. Okay, I'm not saying gay people are possessed by demons. I'm just talking about, you know, that that's what happened in the Bible a few times. Did, did you notice that when they come running after Jesus and, and throw themselves at his feet— he, Jesus doesn't turn to his disciples and be, man, he doesn't say, why can't you guys be more like these demon-possessed lunatics? You know, why can't you have faith like them? And, well, Jesus never did that. So why, why is Andy Stanley pointing at the gay people and saying the fact that they would run to Jesus, that means we should emulate their faith? I mean, let's talk about where we get our identity from for a minute. Uh, I don't think it's a good idea for Christians who, even if they experience a homosexual attraction— but the, as I said, there's some of them out there who keep it under control. Um, they don't, you know, they might say my sexual orientation is gay, but I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, bear that cross and I'm not going to follow after those desires. Okay. I want to say something about that. I don't think it's a good, and again, awesome. hundred percent support that, but I don't think, um, it's a good idea for them to identify themselves as gay Christians. I don't think that's wise to use that kind of terminology. Uh, even if they experience homosexual attraction and they say, I don't follow that, I follow Christ, I put my desires to death as a living sacrifice, again, more power to you. Awesome. But I don't like it when those type of Christians call themselves gay Christians, which is what some of them do. And I don't like that because what it does is it puts a sinful identity on yourself. And the Bible says that whenever we come to Christ, he gives us a new identity. 
Uh, and I'd say this. We don't get our identity from what we're attracted to. We don't get our identity from our temptations. We don't get our identity as Christians. We don't get our identity from a sexual orientation. That is a worldly way of thinking. Okay, to the modern culture, like especially in America, they think that your sexual orientation or your race, they think that's your whole identity. But again, that is worldly thinking whenever you think that way. The Bible doesn't tell us to identify ourselves by our sexual temptations. It, you know, it actually says the opposite. I like what 1 Corinthians 6 says, that our sinful desires and actions, that's what some of us were. It's not what we are, it's what we were. Let me read it from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, you know, you, there's a long list of sins right there, okay? I would never go and say, hi, I'm a greedy Christian. You know, even if greed was something that I struggled with, I wouldn't just identify myself as, hi, I'm a greedy Christian. <laughs> like, that's, that's what I am, that's what, I, that's what my vice is, okay? I wouldn't go and say, hi, I'm a sexually immoral Christian, if I did that, wouldn't that seem kind of like a contradiction in terms? Wouldn't that just confuse people? I think it would confuse outsiders, and I think it would confuse insiders. Hi, I'm a sexually immoral Christian. Well, that's just going to confuse people to, to say something like that. It implies weird things about what it means to be a Christian. So in a similar way, I don't think it would be wise to say, Hi, I'm a gay Christian. Okay, Even if you're a Christian who identifies with a same-sex attraction— um, to say that that means, hi, I'm a gay Christian. Well, one, it brings confusion. Two, I don't think, biblically speaking, that we're supposed to identify ourselves by what our sexual proclivities or fetishes or whatever, what those are. I think that's just weird. So I don't think we should identify ourselves by that. Three, your actions actually speak to what your real identity is more than your inward thoughts and feelings about yourself. Okay, so but just because you feel a certain way, that doesn't mean it's your, it, that's just your identity because it's what you feel like. Okay, it's actually what you do that has a, a greater bearing on who you actually are. All right, let me, th here's a little example I was thinking about that maybe would kind of bring this to light. Even if you read a lot of books about airplanes, that doesn't make you a pilot. Now, you might think you know everything a pilot knows because of all the reading that you've done, but if you haven't actually flown an airplane before, you aren't a pilot. And the Bible doesn't say you used to be a homosexual and you still are because you're attracted to the same gender. No. The Bible says a homosexual is what some of you were. Not are. It's a were. It's a past identity. Your new identity is that you were washed, sanctified, and justified in Jesus. Yeah, it's what you do that really speaks to what your identity is, not something that you feel like on the inside. That's what 1 Corinthians 6 says. And it's clear as day to me, okay? And it's controversial, but only because some people don't like what it says. I don't think it's controversial because it's ambiguous. I think the Bible is extremely clear. But, but Andy Stanley, as you remember from the clip I played earlier, 
he doesn't want to talk about it. He says something, I found this astounding that he would say this, okay? Let me play it again. These are, here's two different clips. I'm splicing together on what Andy Stanley said uh, on what he thinks about this part of the Bible. I'm not changing what he said at all, but I'm splicing two different statements he made together. I know 1 Corinthians 6, and I know Leviticus, and I know Romans 1. It's so interesting to talk about all that stuff. And I know the verses. I know the clobber passages, right? We got to figure this out. So this is how Andy Stanley speaks about Scripture. He refers to passages that ban homosexuality in the lifestyle of a believer, and he refers to them as the clobber passages. And listen, what, what does that mean, the clobber passages? It's a very common slur that pro-gay Bible teachers or pro-gay people, what they use to disparage the passages of Scripture that outlaw gay behavior. They call them the clobber passages. Like nobody who loves the Bible and believes God's word and loves God's word, nobody nobody calls them that. You don't call them the clobber passages if that's what you, <laughs> if you, if you just want to even expound like if you're just like, hey, I want to explain what the Bible says about this issue. You don't call them the clobber passages like you just want to beat people with them. That's not the attitude that a real Christian has. But this is what Andy Stanley refers to them as. Because those, they, you know, people call them the clobber passages because they say that these are just the, the easy to quote verses that you can use to quote unquote clobber a gay person by pointing out very quickly and simply that gay behavior is sinful. So the idea is that you're mean if you're addressing the gay issue with a verse that's so abundantly clear and so direct. And and people who are in favor of the LGBT crowd, they don't want they don't want clear and direct answers to those moral issues. They want to skirt around the question. They want to call it nuance and they want to call it ambiguous. So when you have these clear verses that the where the Bible clearly outlaws homosexuality, they just call them the clobber verses to say you're being mean if you jump to those. So the phrase, the clobber verses, that's only used by pro-gay people to try and intimidate you out of using those verses. Because if you use those verses, it just destroys all their arguments that pro-gay people want to use to try to make homosexuality seem like it's not a big deal. No Christian who loves the Bible, no Christian who loves God's commandments, would, re would refer to those as the clobber verses. But Andy Stanley does call them that. He calls them <laughs> that, and he says, all that stuff. And I'm like, all that stuff? <laughs> when you refer to the Bible as all that stuff, it doesn't sound like you take it very seriously. You know, he says, right there at the end, he says, we got to figure this out. I'm like, the church has had this figured out. For, for thousands of years. We have not been confused on this issue all that time. Church hasn't been confused on whether homosexuality is a sin for the past 2,000 years. It's teachers like Andy Stanley who are now trying to make it confusing. It's only now as the culture wants to celebrate and, and embrace these LGBT lifestyles, suddenly some Bible teachers and some pastors out there want to get all squishy on this. They want to refer to the Bible verses as stuff and use disparaging terms like clobber passages. They say that about the Bible that they claim to believe. So I think Andy Stanley is embarrassed by the Bible and, and by what the Bible says. Like, I think he wants to be cool and be accepted by the world. 
and he doesn't find it very convenient that the Bible says it's a sin to be gay. Like, listen to this clip. Here's another clip. I haven't played this one yet, but listen to something else he said at that conference. You, you know, you do business with gay people. Gay people come to your church. You're not like, <gasps> in fact, it's the opposite. It's like, I think they're gay. There's gay people here. It's great. I love our church. We're, you know, I mean, and if you're gay, I know, just be patient with us. We're weird. I know. But, but you understand because you're here because you love Jesus and you probably grew up in church and you know we're trying to figure this whole thing out. You know, it's, it's just strange to me that he's like, oh, hey, gay people, you know, we're trying to figure all this out. Just be patient with us. Nothing's wrong with you. We're the ones with the problem. Church people weird. Gay people cool. I'm just like, what has happened to this man? He's really gone off the deep end. So my conclusion on Andy Stanley is Christians probably just need to cool it on him (laughs) until he publicly acknowledges and teaches that homosexuality is sexual immorality and that sexual immorality is not morally acceptable in the life of a Christian. Okay. And Hey, I mean, Hey, Christians are not perfect people. Okay. Christians will still sin. Christians still make sexual sins. Okay. Christians backslide. I understand that. I'm not saying they just stop being Christians because they they backslide a little bit or do something wrong. But here's something we got to remember. There's a world of difference between somebody who sins and then acknowledges it as sin and repents versus somebody who sins and then writes a book about why their sin isn't really a sin anymore. Those are two very different things. And Andy Stanley out there, you know, he needs to pick a side. So my conclusion on him, until until he repents or, or acknowledges biblical facts and stops saying these ambiguous things, I think Christians just need to stop listening to anything he has to say. Stop reading his books. Stop listening to his sermons. Don't attend conferences where he's a speaker. Because... Right now, what he's doing is going out there and bringing confusion to the body of Christ on an issue where the Bible is not confused, where the Bible has a lot of clarity. So whenever you have a Bible teacher going out and trying to make something that's clear into something that's confusing, I think he represents a danger to the body of Christ. And I'm, when I say that, I know I'm not picking on Andy Stanley in particular today. There's a dozen other pastors that I would say the same thing about. I'm just sorry to see that he's joining that group. But I'm using that scenario today because I, I want to use that to talk about the real thing that I wanted to talk about today. And it's the term progressive Christians. If you can remember all the way back to five minutes ago, I was going over the reasons that I don't think that we should use the term gay Christians. There's another group of Christians out there, as I say, the so-called Christians, and they identify themselves as progressive Christians. Progressive Christians are those who endorse LGBT lifestyles, like even among believers. They promote that. They promote socialism. They promote liberal policies on immigration and racial issues, on things like critical race theory. They emphasize particular political causes a lot, like climate change, social justice. I don't, you know, as far as theologically, I don't consider them very deep theologically, but they're the ones that when it does come to theological issues, they're often weak on things like eternal hell or Jesus being the one and only way to heaven. Some of them out there will even deny the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And yet, you know, despite all that, 
they still consider themselves Christians. They just refer to you know their particular brand of Christianity. They say we are the progressive Christians. So I'm not going to get into all those issues today. I'm I'm generally just trying to explain the belief system of what a progressive Christian is. And you know there, there's a lot of things there. They're not all equally wrong. Okay, I mean, could somebody be a Christian socialist? Well, I mean, I did do a few episodes a ways back. I did some episodes on why socialism is incompatible with a biblical worldview. But does that mean I'm saying anybody who lives in a socialist country that they can't be a Christian? That being a socialist means you can't go to heaven? Is that what I'm saying? No, I'm not saying that. Those issues are not all equally heretical. Um, But some of them are because they relate to salvation. Like some of them are major issues, especially when it comes to the, 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 the theological issues that surround Jesus. And if the Bible says that people who live a gay lifestyle unrepentantly will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, it seems to me then that telling people there's nothing wrong with being gay is just going to keep them on the road to hell. So what does Romans 1 say about this? This is another, you know, this is one of those what Andy Stanley would call the clobber passages. He doesn't like this very much. Romans 1 is about unsaved humanity. Romans was written, you know, surprise, surprise, to the Romans. And the Roman culture celebrated homosexuality, very similar to today. It was very accepted. It was very prevalent in the society of Rome. It was as normal in their society as it is in our culture. Here's what Paul said to the Romans about a society that has turned its back on God. I'm going to pick it up at Romans 1, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Know that I know that was a big chunk of verses right there. I felt like it was important to read it all. I could have read more. It's an incredible chapter right there, the first chapter of Romans. I've been in ministry for at least 10 years. I've quoted Romans 1 in countless sermons, Bible studies, Sunday school classes, all that stuff. I've heard it in countless sermons and so forth. And yet it seems like every time I read it, it feels more and more relevant to today. You know, we'd always read it. We'd say like, oh man, that describes America so perfectly. And yet another year goes by and it seems to describe us even more perfectly. <laughs> like we are, we're, we're getting to be as debased as Rome. I don't know. We might've passed it by now. We, we might be on our way to being as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. If, like if we were on the evil scale, we're somewhere in the vicinity of Rome and we're skipping Babylon and we're going straight for Sodom and Gomorrah in terms of wickedness. And, and here's why I don't want to use the term progressive Christians anymore. 
Because whenever you support all of that immorality, like what I just listed, I don't think you can call yourself a Christian. You know, in terms of like, I support all that stuff, and if I die today, I would go to heaven. I, I don't see how you can call yourself a Christian and support the sinfulness that sends other people to hell. And I think this issue of the LGBT stuff, that's where it's the clearest to me. Because, you know, good Christians, they can debate, they can discuss when it comes to economic issues, racial issues. I think you can sit down two people who love Jesus and you can have a good faith debate on those kind of things. But when it comes to the LGBT issue, that's just an area where the Bible is 100% clear. And then yet you have a segment of quote unquote the church and they want to pretend that it's all complicated and messy. And, and some people want to call it loving when they won't refer to homosexuality as a sin. It's like they wrap all their squishiness on this issue. They wrap it all up in love. And they want to just talk about instead how the church has, has mistreated the gay community. But it's not loving to refuse to call a sin a sin. Especially when that sin could lead someone to an eternity in hell. That's not loving to close your mouth and refuse to tell people the truth. When you're like that, that's just a desire to be liked by the world. It's not because you love someone else. It's because you want them to love you. And by, by the way, when it comes to those progressive Christians who think that it's just, it's so important that the gay community feel loved, it, you know, it seems like all their love talk seems to disappear pretty quick whenever you want to talk about capitalism or Donald Trump. <laughs> like, I've never heard a progressive Christian talk about how capitalists just need to know that God loves them, that Trump voters, they just need to know that God loves them. White supremacists, they just need to know that they're loved. All that love talk disappears pretty quick. They, they want to blame everything on white supremacy. But yet, where is their evangelistic outreach to all these supposed white supremacists that we have running around? Or where are they trying to reach them with the gospel? That <laughs> They don't talk about any of that. They talk about how we need to better love the gay community and the transgender community. You know, they're not loved enough those communities, even though they have a pride month every June where every co corporation in America <laughs> celebrates them and they get literal parades in their honor on, on a regular basis, you know, where they've never had more legal protection to, than today, you know, compared to any time in America's history. That is apparently the community that progressive Christians say they just need some more love shown to them. So I, here's what I would say. I'm done calling progressive Christians Christians because you can't promote sin and, and know exactly what the Bible says about it and yet still be a Christian. You're like I read all the way down. I read all the way down to the end of Romans one for a reason. I really wanted to get to that last verse. Okay. If you forgot what it said, let me read it again. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So out of that whole chapter, it's that last line that always scares me the most. It says, the people doing these sins deserve to die, but also those who give approval to those sins deserve to die. That means if you're not just promoting it, but even if you're just approving of sinful behavior, you're just as guilty of that behavior as those who do do it. That means, you know, even if you're as straight as can be, if you are out there supporting the LGBT pride, you're as guilty in God's sight 
as the people who are LGBT because you are giving approval to those who practice it. That means if a, if a male tells you, hey, I just want you to know I'm finally ready to come out as a woman. Well, if your response to that is, hey, you go, girl, live your truth, more power to you. That's rebelling against God. You know, you might not be the transgender person, but you're supporting it. And, and that's just as bad. And, uh, and a transgender person, you know, they might be mentally unhealthy. Like, I think it's a mental illness, you know, and I, and I don't know how God's going to judge people who have mental illnesses. You know, I don't, I don't know. That's in his hands to decide what's the right way to judge someone in that kind of situation. But speaking to you, who I'm assuming doesn't have a mental illness, you know what's right and you know what's wrong. And you know what the Bible says. So you do know better and you shouldn't support it. So as I quoted from Romans 1 earlier, um, even if you're not gay, if you're supporting gay lifestyles, I just don't see how you can be a Christian because you're being pro-sin. You know, being a pro-sin Christian, <laughs> that's, that's simply incompatible with the life of a believer. Here's what the Bible says in 1 John 2, uh, ch- chapter, chapter 2, verse 4. It says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Isaiah 5.20, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. So based on those two verses, if you are a pro-gay Christian, the Bible says you don't know God. And it says, woe unto you. And I don't know how to make it any clearer than that. Like, I, I feel personally dishonest every time I use the word progressive Christians, because it makes progressives, it makes progressive Christians, I guess, sound like they're just another brand or just another denomination of Christianity. But honestly, that's not how I see it. To me, they are as far from real Christianity as a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or any other off-brand version. I would never call somebody a Mormon Christian because I don't think Mormons are Christians. And in the, along that same line, I don't know how I could, in good faith, use the term progressive Christian either. And, you know, a, pro, a progressive Christian, that's a pro-gay Christian, and a pro-gay Christian is a pro-sin Christian, and a pro-sin Christian is simply no Christian at all. So I'm just going to start calling progressive Christians what they are. They're progressives. I'm not going to call them Christians, though. They, they might call themselves Christians. I'm just saying that I'm not. Because I think words have meaning, and I don't want to call some, I don't want to call people something that they aren't. So the whole Andy Stanley situation, you know, it kind of just got me thinking this way. And he did not use the term progressive Christians. He didn't even say the term gay Christian. But this whole scenario of like what he said, it just got me to thinking: if I'm going to be consistent in my vocabulary, then I probably need to drop that term from my vocabulary. And now there's still progressives out there that are in the church. Because as the Bible warned us, there's going to be false teachers and false converts in the church. But sometimes we're not going to know who they are. Sometimes we will, but sometimes we won't. And Jesus says uh, in Matthew 13, he's going to sort them all out later. But until then, we got to stay on guard. We're not always going to get it right. And, And I might be wrong here, but I just feel like more damage is going to be done if I pretend that progressives are saved when they actually aren't.
So thanks for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> That's where my thought process has went for this past week. Um, in a minute, let's do a prophecy update and then we'll do some mailbag and then we'll sign off for today. If you're a longtime listener, uh, about a year ago at this time, I did an episode on Russia and Ukraine and Bible prophecy. Somewhere around episode 17 is where that one fell in. Uh, so if you know, even if you don't remember it, um, or if you weren't listening back then, I'll just tell you my conclusion on that episode was that I believe that the conflict that's going on right now between Ukraine and Russia, that's not something that's mentioned specifically in Bible prophecy, but it could very easily lead to other things that are going to happen in prophecy. And specifically, that Gog and Magog war of Ezekiel 38 and 39. It just seems right now like a lot of pieces are falling more and more into place for that conflict to take off. And whenever I say they're falling into place, I don't mean that I think the Gog and Magog war is going to like just break out in the next week. But it feels more like sometime in the next decade that that could happen. So let's just talk for a few minutes about how things have transpired in the past year, ever since that episode. Um, we're about to hit the one-year anniversary of that war breaking out. Here's how I remember this, because I remember that I actually, I broke my computer right around that time. I had a, um, I had a MacBook Pro, and uh, I used it for everything. I used it for writing sermons, Bible studies, podcasting, PowerPoints, like everything in my life, it ran through my MacBook Pro. And then one day, I just got done teaching a Sunday school class, and I was I was unplugging it from the monitor whenever I dropped it. And it, like, it only fell a few feet. It fell onto a carpeted floor, but it just totally ruined it. And it, it was going to be, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars to fix it. And And that computer was already kind of old at the time, that I dropped it. So I was, I had to decide, do I fix this one or do I just buy a whole new one? So, uh, anyway, I ended up eventually buying a new one, but the really demoralizing thing about all that is I had just finished a lesson for the podcast here. Uh, it was the lesson on Ezekiel chapter four about the 430 year prophecy. And like, I was really, really happy with how that lesson had turned out. It was a lot of work. If you go back and listen to that one, there's a lot of math involved on that one. I had just done all the work and then I dropped my computer and like I lost it all. Um, I had to I had to go back and do it all over because I back up my files like once a month. So anything I'd worked on for the past month, it had not been backed up. So I had to, when I got my new computer, I had to redo all that. And, and so that took me a while. And so to fill the gap in a little bit more, like as far as the podcast, I just decided to hop on and talk about the Ukraine and Russia war. And I wouldn't have even done that if I hadn't like dropped my computer and lost my original lesson. If it wasn't for that, I, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done this other lesson instead. So it was kind of a spur of the moment thing. Then that ends up being one of the most popular episodes of this podcast is that Ukraine and Russia Bible prophecy episode. So anyway, I thought let's just address that issue a little bit more. Let's just talk about it again because now it's been about a year. And some more stuff has transpired. Um, for one thing, this war has dragged on a lot longer than what the so-called experts said it would. Um, if you remember, they were talking like Ukraine was going to fall within a few days. And then that didn't happen. They said, well, it's going to be within a few weeks. 
And then they said it would be by May. And now, um, you know, it's been a year. So it's never happened the way that they told us it would. And maybe they would have been right if not for all of the money and all the weapons that our country, United States, keeps pumping into that conflict. And so maybe they would have been right if not for that. But the U.S. has basically gotten involved and is helping Ukraine fight off Russia. And um, what I find interesting is that it seems like these world events, they, they could very easily lead to the prophecy that's given in Ezekiel 38, uh, potentially, okay? Nothing from Ezekiel 38 has happened yet, but it, I just get this feeling of the stage being set. So let's look at what Ezekiel 38 says. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords. Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth Tagarma from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes, many peoples are with you. Let me stop there. So the prophecy mentions several nations that band together for a battle. And, and as you read it, it says they march into battle against Israel. Now let's look at a few details of this prophecy. Um, Gog and Magog, without getting too far into the weeds. Gog and Magog are thought to be this area that's near the Caspian and Black Seas. If you look at like a Europe or a Eurasian map, that part of the world. Right over in between those seas, that's kind of the Gog and Magog area. It's right in the territory that Russia and Ukraine are fighting over right now. <laughs> so it's actually kind of ambiguous as to which country's territory is, is the leader in this conflict. Like potentially it could be Putin or it could be Zelensky. Um, now, I think it's obvious if it, were, if it were to happen today right now, Putin is the, is the guy who would be making this alliance with all these other nations. Um, it maybe he just hasn't ca captured the territory yet that he needs to hold on to in order to be the guy who fulfills this prophecy. You know, it's kind of interesting that he could win this war and then he might be the guy who fulfills this prophecy of Gog, who's going to have this big defeat. So I don't know. It's kind of interesting if it turns out that way. Also, he might already have the territory he needs. It's just a little bit ambiguous. Like if you were to put that on the map, it'd just be hard to pinpoint a specific place. It's more of a region, and it's kind of this region where the conflict is happening right now. So who are the other nations that are said to be in this coalition with Russia? We'll just say it's Russia, okay? And I gave you the names like Meshach and Tubal and Persia. And if you look on a map today, you're going to have trouble <laughs> finding those places because <laughs> they have modern-day equivalents that have different names. So those places today would be Iran, Turkey, Libya, and Ethiopia. Now, are these nations allies with each other today? Well, I'd say they're certainly becoming allies. Um, here's a quote from the president of Turkey. It's President Erdogan over there. Here's something he just said this past weekend. He says, let's come together and have some trilateral meetings now as Russia, Turkey, Syria. We can even add Iran to it. Let's join Iran as well. That is a direct quote here of what he is saying, what he just said like in the past week. 
He's upset because the United States has failed to give him some of the fighter jets that he says he was promised. So he says instead, he's going to ally with these other nations, Russia, Syria, Iran, and Turkey. And Syria is interesting because if you remember, it fell apart a few years ago. They were having like a civil war in their nation. And when that happened, Russia just like rolled right in there. So Russia is an occupying force over there in much of Syria. And, and that puts them right on the border of Israel. Because they, that is the northern edge of Israel is the, their border with Syria. So now Russia, since they set up camp there, they have a direct path into Israel if they ever decided they wanted to go to Israel. They're right on Israel's border. Okay, and look again at what Ezekiel 38 said. God says to Russia, I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army. So God turns Russia, okay, or Gog, he turns them from something else and points him in a new direction. And that new direction is going to be Israel. So God redirects Russia from whatever they were looking at and redirects it to Israel. Now, what could that be? What were they looking at before? Well, I'd say possibly Putin gets frustrated because this Ukraine war is not going the way that he thought it would. And so in his frustration, perhaps he turns his attention to Israel and he asks a few nations who are, who are friendly to him to join in this fight because he has a path straight into Israel going through Syria. It's on the northernmost border of Israel. The prophecy says that Israel is attacked from the north so keep in mind, one of the reasons that Putin wants the Ukrainian land is because of its gas. But if he can't get to it, then maybe he decides to go after Middle Eastern gas instead. And he, like I said, he's friendly with some of these Middle Eastern countries. Not Israel, but some of the others. So he could go to war with Israel, and, and many of those Muslim nations, they'd be just fine and dandy with joining in that conflict <laughs> just because they hate Israel. So we could see the alignment of nations being set right now for that Ezekiel 38 and 39 war. And so I'm basically just updating you on how it's going. You know, I don't, I don't know how Ethiopia and Libya get drawn into this yet. Like, I believe, I know this for sure about Li Libya. I think Ethiopia too, they are Muslim-led countries, you know, just like most of these other ones. So I haven't seen any headlines that have mentioned their potential involvement in some kind of alliance with Russia, but we'll just keep our eyes on it. You know, because I think we could see some really fascinating stuff come out of this in the next few years. So there's a prophecy update for you. Um, I want to do these on the, the Russia stuff because <laughs> we've been doing a study on Ezekiel. Like ever since I started this podcast, I've done like 25 lessons about Ezekiel. And we've only covered 16 chapters so far, which is that's actually one third of the book. So obviously I'm taking my sweet time <laughs> on that series. <laughs> Uh, the podcast is is 16 months old, so we've been covering it at a rate of about one chapter per month. So it'll be a little while before we get to Ezekiel 38 and 39. And I'm a little curious if Ezekiel 38 and 39, if they haven't already happened by the time we get to it on the podcast. <laughs> like we might be studying them as history instead of prophecy by the time we finally get there. Okay, before we go, let's answer a few mailbag questions. Um, 
Let me plug my other podcast real quick. I have, an, I have another show that I like to do where I talk about current events, and it's through kind of a... Um, the, there's always two stories to, to every story to me. There's what happened, but then there's also how the media covered what happened. That's always the more interesting story to me, actually, because I have a media background. I'm working in media right now, actually, and uh, uh, I, I pay a lot of attention to how the media talks about news and stuff going on. So um, I have a podcast that talks about that. Uh, that's called The Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. So go check that out if you, uh, if you like keeping up with current events. And um, I just did a really long episode that came out last week, like really long. And I'm like, okay, I'm taking a little break <laughs> after that. And you're going to try to focus on this podcast. My cross-references one. But anyway, if you, if you want to caught up on some of the, the fakest news from the past few months, Go look at what we've been talking about on the Fake News Podcast. And I'll mention for today, if you have a question on anything that we've talked about today, just leave a comment, shoot us an email, crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. If you send in a question, I will, I will try to answer it. Um, I've gotten a bit overloaded with questions at the end of 2022. I'm still catching up on all those. But if you send it to me, <laughs> eventually I will get to it, whether it's on here or whether I just reply in person, but crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And by the way, as I said, 2022, it got really busy on the podcast uh, as far as growth and interaction and all that. We got really busy with a lot of that stuff. But the beginning of 2023 has been slow so far. So just want to put this reminder out there. Make sure that you are subscribed if you are not already. And uh, you know, please share the podcast with somebody if you think the content in it would be beneficial to them then please you know, take a moment to share it somewhere and help get the word out about the podcast. I appreciate that. Let's get into some mailbag questions. First one today comes from Greg. So he sent this in response to episode 50, and that was about Daniel's 70 weeks. And so in that episode, I make the claim that Revelation, it doesn't mention a seven-year period of tribulation. Now, I believe in a seven-year tribulation that's coming someday, I just, what I was saying was, I don't think Revelation states that it's seven years. I think that seven-year number actually comes from the book of Daniel. So I was talking about that on that episode. Here's what Greg says uh, to that in response. He says, actually, Revelation does talk about the seven years. For after the seals are opened, the trumpets are handed out. Revelation 9.12, the first woe. Revelation 11, the two witnesses that were preaching during the trumpets for three point... I'm, I'm, okay, Greg didn't use a lot of punctuation, so I know this is like a run-on sentence. I'm trying to figure out where the periods are supposed to go. Um, here's, what, here's what he's saying, okay? He's saying that in Revelation 11, the two witnesses that were preaching, uh, they preached for 3.5 years, okay? And then in Revelation 12, I think 12.12... It says the beast reigns for 3.5 years. I'm sorry, Greg. I know I'm re, I'm like paraphrasing your email, but it was uh, uh, the comment that you sent in. He sent this in through Rumble. So this podcast is available on Rumble. And I'm glad I put it up there because here we are getting some interaction from it. But um, anyway, so he says Revelation 12 12 talks about the Antichrist reigning for 3.5 years. That matches with Daniel 9 26 and 27, which is the 70th week. So anyway, Greg, let me start with where we agree. Yes, Daniel 9 is talking about the seven years. That's what my whole podcast episode was about on that episode 50, was that the seven years 
our Daniel's 70th week, and that's where we get the whole seven-year doctrine from or point of theology. That comes from Daniel chapter 9. So, I mean, we agree about it being there. As far as what Revelation says, um, there is a three and a half years mentioned a handful of times in Revelation. But what my point was, we never have a statement made in Revelation that there's going to be a seven-year tribulation. You know, yeah, we could take 3.5 years from here and add them to another 3.5 years, and that adds up to seven. Yeah, we could do that. But if you look at Revelation by itself, we don't necessarily know that those three and a half year periods, that they are supposed to be added up that way. You know, we don't know whether they're sequential, that one comes after another. Uh, we don't know if they are the exact same th three and a half year periods, you know? Uh, we don't know that, you know, it mentioned the two witnesses there, that they prophesy for three and a half years. Well, we don't necessarily know that that just slots in at the first half of the tribulation and ends at the end of the first half. We don't know that. They could come in at year two. And then they leave at year five and a half. It could, it could be the same three and a half year period that Revelation 12 was talking about with the Antichrist reigning. I don't think it is. I don't think you do either. But here's my point. Revelation itself doesn't tell us. Okay? And, and I find that a really curious omission. That's why I mentioned it on that episode. Because there's lots and lots of sevens in the book of Revelation. And I believe that the, you know, the part that's about the tribulation, that it all takes place in a seven year stretch. So you'd think that the book would mention that. <laughs> you'd think it'd be like, hey, by the way, all this happens in seven years. You know, you'd think it would mention that. It actually never says that. So, again, I do believe it's a seven-year period. It's just interesting to me that the book doesn't say that. That's why we have to cross-reference the prophecies in Revelation with the end-time prophecies that we have in Daniel. And, um, and hey, that's why I made this podcast, you know, because that's, that's what we do here. Okay. One more mailbag question today, and then we'll close down. This comes from Lori. Okay, here's what Lori says. And this is on a totally different subject. It's not in response to a specific episode. It's just a general comment here. Lori says, I have a nice Christian mother who lies her little butt off all the time. I'm not a Christian, but I honor Jesus, and I just can't stand hypocrisy. My mom insults my intelligence with crazy blatant lies, but when confronted... My mother reminds me that God forgives. So what's the deal? Are we forgiven or are we going to hell for our lying and other sins? So, um, Lori, let me just say this. First of all, <laughs> that's got to be really irritating to hear somebody constantly talking about how they are a Christian, but they don't even attempt to try to be like an honest person or tell you the truth about things. So I think, you, I think you've got a good question right there. What do you do with someone like that? And I guess what I'd say, I would question if somebody even is really a Christian, if they can just lie all the time without feeling bad about it. The Bible says that when someone becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside them and then convicts them of their sins. So that means whenever we sin, we feel guilty about it because sinning diminishes our relationship with God. And so if somebody just sins all they want and they don't have that reaction— I would question whether they are truly saved. But at the end of the day, you know, I, I can't know, like I can't judge, I can't decide someone else's salvation. At the end of the day, God's the judge. And so we have to answer for ourselves whenever we die. Uh, and, and that kind of keeps in the theme with what I've been talking about on this whole podcast episode today. I don't really care if somebody uses the title of Christian 
Because if they refuse to act like one, I just have no interest in their Christianity. I could not care less what your label is. When it comes to being a Christian, like, okay, actually acknowledging Christ, that's, that's just the starting point. Like, that's, that's the first thing you do when you become a Christian. But it's far from the last thing you do, because after acknowledging him, then you're supposed to start living a life of following him. So whenever somebody identifies as a Christian, but then they embrace, say, progressive values that are just completely antithetical and incompatible with Christ, I have no interest in pretending that I see them as a Christian. Like, I don't see how that's the polite thing to do. And if anything, it could give them a false sense of security and it could confuse the outsiders. So, um, so I kind of tied that in with, with Lori's question today too. If somebody was just known for being a huge liar, like if they lie so much that it's basically come to, to define their personality, I don't care what label they put on themselves. Cause personally, I wouldn't bet two cents on their salvation. Not pretending that I can know or that I'm the one who decides their salvation. Hey, that's God's job. But well, you know, but what I am what I am tasked to do with on this earth is I gotta look at the the fruit and make my own determinations about whether I'm gonna consider somebody a brother or sister in Christ. So if they are acting like the opposite of a Christian, if they're doing things or promoting things that the Bible says is gonna keep someone out of heaven, if that's the case, I don't see how I'm doing anybody any favors by pretending that they're a Christian. Um, I mentioned before I'm a minister in the Assemblies of God. Okay, so like they gave me credentials a while back. But also, I'm a huge nerd. Uh, and I mentioned that because there was a Facebook group that, that I joined a few years back. And it was, for, it was for Assemblies of God pastors who are also huge nerds. So that'd be the perfect group for me, right? <laughs> like, and if you're wondering how they could have a group like that on Facebook, because you got to remember, there's like... There's tens of thousands of AG ministers. AG means Assembly of God. There's tens of thousands of them. And of those thousands, there are actually a few hundred who that we'd consider ourselves nerds. And so we joined this Facebook group where they would, I didn't start it, but they, I found it. They'd share dorky memes and <laughs> geek news, stuff like that. And um, I was enjoying the group, uh, but occasionally people would make some weird comments. And there was this one time, I, I kind of, the last, I mean, the last time I was in the group, because I left the group shortly after this, I thought, you know, this is probably not the group for me, but <laughs> a conversation opened up in the group and it was about like some movie or TV show and it had like gay content in it. I don't remember the show. This is like over a year ago, but um, I said something about it being like regrettable that the, that the writers were going to put this junk in the TV show. And there was another person in the group he labeled, he listed himself as an AG youth pastor. And he said that this group is not the place to debate whether homosexuality is a sin. And I was like, yeah, well, of course not, because it's an Assemblies of God pastors group. And the Assemblies of God position on homosexuality is clear. <laughs> like, and I was referring to on the Assemblies of God website, they put up position papers and it actually says, like, this is what our denomination believes on this or that issue. Um, so, you know, and we're just right in line with what the Bible says on that issue. But, but more importantly, what I was referring to with this guy was not just our denomination's position, but I was referring to what the Bible said about it. <laughs> Cause I'm like, okay, if you're an AG minister, this really shouldn't be a debatable or controversial issue at all. 
you know, I, so again, what I said to him was, I was like, of course, we don't need to debate it because we're in an AG pastors group and the AG position on homosexuality is clear. And then this AG youth pastor says, well, I'm not going to get into a discussion about crappy AG theology. And that's what he called it. <laughs> he said, if you believe that homosexuality is a sin, he called it crappy AG theology. But you know, I'm hearing that. I'm like, well, that's really not just calling AG theology crappy. I mean, that's not some AG thing. It's a very traditional Christian belief. If you, you know, it's if thinking that homosexuality behavior is sinful, that's just a biblical belief. But here he is calling it crappy. I pointed this out to him, and he says, "Well, whether somebody goes to hell for being gay, that's between them and God. That's up to God, not me." And I, and I was like, yeah, it, it is up to God, but he's already told us what he thinks about it. Like, it's not me deciding anything. I'm just trying to communicate what God's already decided. <laughs> and he says that I don't speak for God. And I said, yeah, because the Bible speaks for God. And the Bible makes it clear what God thinks. And I follow the God of the Bible. And I said, what God do you follow? Well, when I said that, that I did not make any friends with that comment. <laughs> then suddenly, everybody in the group jumps down my throat. Okay, the first of all, the guy that I was talking to, he says, whoa, man, you just called me out. He says, I'm just trying to talk about a TV show and you called me out. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, but what's wrong with that? Like, this is a bigger issue than a TV show. And also, you're the one who's in the AG group and yet you're bad-mouthing bad AG theology and you're bad-mouthing the Bible. <laughs> and you think I'm the one being inappropriate. But he's like, because he goes, man, I can't believe you called me out. And I would have thought the people in the AG group, like these other, what, you know, I think probably anybody could join the group, even though it said AG pastors, but I guess anybody could join. I thought they would have, you know, maybe been on my side or something, but suddenly everyone's jumping down my throat and they're like, hey, Luke, you can't insinuate that someone's not a Christian just because they disagree with you about something. And I'm like, okay, but why would I assume this guy's a Christian? Because <laughs> he's in an AG group. And yet he says that AG theology is crappy. He's, he's also disparaging a very historic, traditional Christian belief. So he's lying to somebody somewhere. Uh, he hasn't said anything to imply that he's a Christian or a Bible believer. So why, why would I assume at this point that he even is a Christian? But, that, you know, everybody got mad at me. And again, it's, it's just a Facebook group. And I'm not, saying, I'm not saying it represents the Assemblies of God organization as a whole. Because this was th this was not like affiliated with them officially. This was just a silly Facebook group. Apparently, they let anybody into it, despite its name. So, I'm not against AG. I think the AG organization is great, but but this group of AG nerds, they apparently cared more about nerd stuff than than God stuff. So I thought, well, this is probably not the best use of my time. <laughs> so I just left the group because um, I think it's pretty bad when the Bible even needs to be defended in a group of so-called pastors. Um, but I was also really put off by the fact that it seemed like everybody was mad at me when I was the one in here defending the Bible. So I guess here's my conclusion on all this, and I'll sign off for today. I think there's something wrong with the American church right now. It's like they believe it is worse to judge sin than it is to commit sin. Everybody quotes Matthew 7, 1. Nobody knows 1 John 2, 4. And, and this causes the rest of the world, when they see this stuff, 
to have confusion about Christianity. It confuses people, both inside the church and those on the outside. And we are supposed to be a lighthouse in a dark world that warns everyone else about where the edge of the sea is, right? Think about what a lighthouse does. They warn, they warn the boats where the edge of the sea is so that the boats don't crash into the land. But it's like our lighthouses are just scattered all over the countryside. And, and some of them are, are thousands of miles away from the edge of the sea. And this misleads people because they think they're safe because the lighthouse is way out here and they end up crashing right into the rocks. They're going to think that they're safe when they're actually crashing right into the edge of a cliff. If your lighthouse leads people into destruction... I'm going to disavow your lighthouse. I think it's a false lighthouse. And that's why I have a a problem with the term progressive Christianity. That's why I have a problem with Christians like Lori's mom that we mentioned before. So back to Lori. You know, Lori, if you ever hear this, I, I hope you'll give Christianity another chance because somebody who unrepentantly lies is not giving you a good example of it. And if your only example of Christianity is a person who won't stop lying... I can totally understand why that would turn you off of the religion. But here's what I think, since you said all that stuff, I think you know better. Like, I think you have a sense of right and wrong. So what's most important for you, Lori, is to ask yourself this. Was Jesus Christ the Son of God? That's what you've got to figure out. Because at the end of your life, you're going to have to meet God. And his question is not going to be about your mother. His question is going to be, What did you do with my son, Jesus? And I think you shouldn't wait till the end of your life to answer that question. I think you need to figure that out right away. To Lori and to everyone else listening today, thanks for tuning in to the Cross References podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you to unhitch from Andy Stanley. (laughs) 